0: I want to ask you this question as you read this text with me, as you think through it and contemplate its implications, you might be saying, well, is this, does this have anything to do with me? Is this just a, an interesting story that is foundational and that it talks about some of the founders of our faith, the disciples? Is this important for me? Does it apply to me? I would, I would argue that it does. You see, the great commission is that we go preaching the gospel to every person. None of us would argue as to whether that applies to us. That's our command, that we go and preach the gospel to every person. Disciples making disciples who go and make disciples. And we're just part of that story, right? I love the play on words that the organization Acts 29 has. The story of the church and the spirits working in the church is Acts chapter 1-28. through 28. And we say, well, where do we fit into that story? Well, we're Acts chapter 29, right? We're the next story. We're part of that great commission taking place. Disciples who preached the gospel and planted churches and made disciples who preached the gospel and discipled and planted churches. We're part of that story. And so we say from Matthew 28 that the great commission applies to us. Jesus is speaking to a specific group of men in this passage, but he's also speaking to us as well. This also applies to us. He's also sent us out to preach the gospel, a gospel of repentance. So I have three questions for, or uh, encouragements for you this morning as we walk through this. Three points of application, just three, main ones anyway. And the first one is this, hear the call, hear the call. As you look at this text, don't be too quick to say, well, everything applies to me because everything doesn't. Not everything's about you, right? And so let's read it for what it is. Jesus, this is a true account. Jesus speaking to his disciples, calling them, preparing them, about to send them. But then recognize that, hey, they heard the call of Jesus. From Mark chapter one, all the way to chapter six, we've seen Jesus interacting with them and calling them and preparing them. And when he says, hey, come to me, we're having a meeting. I'm about to send you out. Recognize that that call has also been extended to many of you here this morning. Have you heard that call? There is, in fact, a calling. There's a word that the Bible uses often. It's the word election. It's a biblical term. It simply means choice. Jesus chose his disciples. He chose them. He called them to himself, and then he sent them out. Now, when Jesus called the disciples, notice there was 12 disciples. He called 12, right? There was a determined amount that Jesus chose, that Jesus elected. They came to him. When Jesus called, if, it, if that extension, that call to be his disciple there, one of the 12, one of the apostles, went to everybody, then we could continually, from that point until now, be calling ourselves apostles and calling ourselves one of the initial 12, one of the initial group. But that's not the case. That's not to say that this doesn't apply to us. We've also been called, yes, in a different way, but we've also been called to do exactly what these disciples will do to go and to call people, to proclaim the gospel of repentance to a world that is dying and lost and enslaved. John chapter 10, Jesus says this. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. Did you hear what he said? My sheep hear my voice and I know them. That idea, that word know them, it doesn't just mean he knows of them because that could be true of every single person and every sheep ever to cross or walk the face of the earth, right? That word know, Jesus is not just saying, I know them. I know of them, like I know the mayor of Hagerstown. I know of him. No, he's not saying that. He's saying, I chose them. They are mine. They belong to me. Again, that word know has a rich, rich history in the Bible. And so there's a picture of several herds of sheep all sort of combined in a, in, a, in a field. And the shepherds, they're kind of on the, the side of the field there having their coffee, holding on to their staves. They've led their respective groups of, of sheep, their herds, into this valley to, to eat or to drink or to rest, whatever it is. They've, they've mingled to some degree. But then at the appointed time, each shepherd makes his distinct call. And when he does, what happens? When he calls the sheep, what happens? though all the sheep have intermingled, all the sheep are mixed up, as it were, when he calls, when that shepherd makes his distinct call, the sheep, they hear it and they know it. And what do they do? They come to their shepherd. They run to him. In a similar way, I want to call you this morning to, echo, uh, to hear the echo through the words of scripture, the, the words of Christ, to hear the call and to come to him. And so if you are a Christian this morning, you are a disciple of Jesus, report for duty. And listen, this is speaking to you this morning. I also want you to notice quickly that those who are called are also sent. We've talked about that many times. I told Sarah this morning, I, 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 as we walk through Mark, using the rails of scripture, just plodding along the next passage after the next passage after the next passage, moving Sunday after Sunday, I think, well, God, are you going to really meet the needs of your people through this? And the answer is yes, he will. This is what we need to hear this morning, that we, the disciples of Christ, Christians, we've been called to him, we must hear the call and be prepared to be sent out. That word word there, began. It speaks to this idea of, Him beginning to use a new method with his disciples. He's sending them out in pairs. Again, this has not happened as of yet in Jesus' ministry. But what's interesting is that this actually fulfills an Old Testament requirement. You might think, well, what's this arbitrary number? Two by two? Is this kind of like mom saying, hey, we go to the bathroom in the grocery store? Two by two, we always are, are with one another. It's not exactly that. It's rooted in something a little bit more biblical, right? In the Old Testament, specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 17, also in Deuteronomy chapter 19. Uh, they were, uh, the, the idea was that if somebody was going to be um, accused of something or judgment was going to be passed on somebody, they would have to be done in, in groups of two or three. Two or three would have to agree. And at that, whatever would be established would or said would be established. It would be considered True. And so if you were accused of something, if two men in right standing in the community both agreed that such and such happened by such and such or to such and such, then that was as good as true. This was a biblical command. And you'll see how important that is in just a moment. Maybe you remember as we read through this. Their presence in a city or in a place would either bring condemnation or salvation depending on whether or not that place received them or not. And then they were to demonstrate God's judgment upon them by shaking the dust off their feet. We'll look at that in just a minute. But he began to send them out two by two. That's important. Two, prophesying, testifying against or for was important. But not only that, traveling in pairs provided them with mutual support. It provided them with accountability, with companionship. And so sending men out in pairs was a common Jewish practice. And I don't want to speak, lean too much into this, but I think it's important that Jesus sent disciples out two by two. That's a built-in fail-safe to say, are you walking in community? Are you walking with accountability? Do you have companionship? Do you have mutual support? I recently heard a Christian say this, I don't need friends. I don't need to walk with people. And I thought, that is unchristian. That's unbiblical. And it was none of you, so don't worry. I'm not talking bad about you. But maybe you did think that. You, you, maybe you've thought that. I know I have before. I've been tempted to think that, and yet it's not a biblical thing. It's not a Christian thing at all. Christ has commanded that his church be connected with one another for mutual support, for accountability, for companionship. And this is a precedent that Jesus starts in the church that we need to emulate That we walk in accountability, that we walk in companionship. And so just want to park it just for a minute and ask you, just to put a little pressure on you, are you walking in that? Do people really know you? Maybe you've seen this before, you've experienced this. When you travel with one other person, maybe into a a foreign land or a distant city, maybe you stay in a hotel together and... You get up early and you slept. one of them slept in and you're scrambling and you brush your teeth. Maybe it's for work. You're trying to get to this meeting in this other city somewhere. You really get to know them, don't you? You see how they're, maybe you're at a conference and you see how they talk, how they do talk to their family while they're away or how they don't or how they, how often they brush their teeth or how often that they don't. It's really difficult to hide who you are when you spend a, a lot of time with this other person. Many of you are shaking your heads and many of you have been married for less than a year and you're beginning to see or right at a year and you're beginning to see and testify that, hey, I've got to know this person in a, in a way that I did not know them before. They can't hide things from me anymore. They were able to but now they can't. Uh, Yesterday we spent some time as a family in Annapolis and it was interesting to hear our tour guide said, that back in the 1600s, uh, 1700s, that, that uh, if you were uh, a bit portly, if you were a bit heavier, that was a sign that you ate well. And if you ate well, it was a sign that you were wealthy. And so young suitors looking for a future spouse, a future future mate, somebody to start a family with, they would oftentimes, if they were skinny, they would pad their clothing a little bit, that they could make themselves look a little bit heavier a little bit more wealthy it's difficult to do once you've been married right they know that they did not marry a wealthy man as the stuffing falls out of their cloak right why why is this important because we have to we have to know people and we have to be known So we need mutual support, we need accountability, we need companionship. And so disciples, as you go out, as you preach the gospel, as you proclaim it, as you call folks to repent, do so in community. Do so with accountability, do so with companionship. Moving on in this passage, it says he gave them authority over unclean spirits. He gave them authority to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. And when they did, that would authenticate their message But why does Mark only list to cast out demons? Well, uh, Matthew chapter 10, I believe it is, is a parallel passage to this. It gives a little bit of a more uh, fuller uh, explanation, which as you remember, Mark is in a hurry. He's always in a hurry. He's moving along and he kind of just wants to give, in a sense, the cliff notes, right? And Matthew gives a little bit more detail. But what we see is that this is the greatest and most really dramatic gift Mark wants us to know that they Jesus has given them the, uh, the the authority, the power to cast out a demon, and so it's taken for granted. It's obvious, uh, or just implied, that they would also receive the lesser gift, the the lesser gifts of being able to heal. Which uh, which you might say, well, I don't know that that's lesser or more. Well, when you're demon possessed, you and 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 you're sick, uh, the demon possession is is far more pressing. And so it's not just authority that the disciples were given by Jesus it's authority and it's coupled with power here's what I mean by that if you say that somebody has authority it's it's basically like saying hey um, I've given them a badge and yet if you have a badge some of you that you've been in charge you've been given authority you recognize that you even though you have authority you can still be what you can still face rebellion right and so the disciples weren't just given by Jesus authority, like they had some kind of like junior badge that they could walk around and try to arrest demons, and, or try to anyway, and really just get manhandled by them. No, it was authority, but it was also authority coupled with power. And so that word authority is power and authority. It's actually the ability. It's the, the right and the ability together. And so unclean spirits, beware, right? The disciples were going forward. They had the the power. Jesus gave his power, his authority. If you think back to the reference that I spoke just a moment ago, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. And then he says, now go. Well, this, this mirrors that in a way. Jesus is saying to them, long before Matthew 28, he's saying, hey, go, I give you my authority. It's been given to me. Now I give you that authority to go. Jesus presents it to them and when he gives them this authority, it's, it's far more than just a plastic badge, right? It's far more than that. Verse 8, it says, he charged them, he commanded them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Quite literally, they were to take nothing but a stick. That's a bit humorous to think about. They had Jesus is like, hey, I don't want you taking anything but a stick. He commanded them as such. The text uses the word staff. I, I think it's funny to just say stick. But a staff or a rod or a stick, it could be used for different purposes. It could aid you in walking. Some of us, we like to carry a walking stick when we hike or when we walk uh, long distances. It can also be used for herding animals. It can be used for, for beating people in self-defense, right? It, it can be used for uh, various, it's like the... It's like the Swiss Army knife, if you will, of the first century. And so that's it. That's all they could take. They could take this stick, but nothing else. You know, these guys are going to be traveling all over the Judean countryside. It'd be nice if they could take like maybe some kind bars or or some trail mix along with their uh, Swiss Army stick. Uh, But no, Jesus commands them not to even bring bread. And I don't don't know about you, but when I decide to travel somebody, usually I punctuate it, and I, and I like really plan it out by my meals. Jim Gaffigan has a little, little, little thing about that, and it's so true. When we go traveling, what do we do? We're like, well, hey, let's go get something to eat, and then after that, we'll probably be hungry, and we'll get something to eat, and then we'll you know, be wandering around, and we'll maybe get a snack, and then by that time, we'll probably want to get something to eat. Well, this is not what the disciples are. They're like, hey, we're going to go on a conference, Jesus. We're going to go on a preaching tour, and that's great. We're going to stay in a hotel. We're going to get to eat lots of good food. This is great. Can we like get a per diem as well? And Jesus is like, no. Nope. No, it's not going to be that kind of a trip. You say, well, this is is 2,000 years ago. Well, I mean, men are men, right? We still want to eat. And Jesus is saying, hey, you're not going to take any food with you. You're not gonna take any food. Yesterday, again, I referenced the fact that we took a trip to Annapolis, but we did not do what Jesus said to do. And I'll unpack that a little bit more, but we had a backpack full of crackers and Cheez-Its and uh, cheese crackers, right? You know, we had, uh, we had water bottles, but Jesus said, take no bread. And for those of you who are like uh, carb, keto people out there, you're like, hey, see, even Jesus said, that. well, this doesn't just mean bread. It it really stands for food in general or nourishment. They're not to bring any food or nourishment along on this trip. Sometimes it's nice to travel without plans, right? You're just like, hey, we're going to, we'll just, we'll just get on the road and we'll just stop wherever we want to stop. That's a lot of fun. How many of you guys have ever done that before? You just get on the road and it's like, hey, I usually am planned out. But this trip's just gonna be kind of like, hey, we're just gonna go with the flow and just see where the road takes us. That sounds like a lot of fun. Again, this is not what's taking place here. You see, I never when I go on one of those trips, I never leave without my wallet. Sarah and I, before we go on vacation or something like that, we'll do our best, we'll be as diligent as possible to have everything prepared and packed up. But at the end of it, we just say, hey, let's pray and ask God to bless and trust the fact that whatever we don't have in our car, we can probably just buy when we get there. Whether it be a toothbrush or whether it be hand sanitizer, whatever we need, we can probably just get it where we are going. They probably have a Walmart, right? But that's, again, not what's taking place here. They're not to lean into the safety and comfort of their wallets. So travelers in Jesus' day, they wouldn't travel with fossil wallets or Louis Vuitton purses. No, the, the folds in a traveler's belt or, or waistband or girdle would be folded up in such a way that they could hold money in there. They would put uh, coins and, and various things that were important, papers, they could hide them in their belt. And that would basically serve as a wallet or a purse or a pocket that they could keep what was valuable. So this would keep their money safe from pickpockets or also just from losing it. But Jesus' disciples would not be taking money with them on their journey. And so they wouldn't have to stuff any coins in their wallet. They would not be getting a per diem. What would they do for food and lodging, though, when they got to where they were going? Right? They, didn't have, they weren't to take a bag. They weren't to take any money. They were just to take a staff. And as they would go along, what would they do for food? What would they do for lodging? Well, they were to rely completely on receiving hospitality from the people that they would encounter on their journeys. They were to entirely trust the Lord that he would supply their needs through the people that they would meet. Recognizing that God determines the time and place of not only their dwelling and journey, but also those whom they would be visiting. They were to lean in heavy to that, to trusting the Lord. So no food, no money, no backpack, no tent, no bag. Why would they need a bag? That kind of reminds me of Jesus' teaching. Having brought nothing into this world, right? You can be certain that you will carry nothing out. How many of you ever went on a trip and you've taken an extra bag with you? Why did you take that extra bag? You're going to bring stuff back. And these disciples, many of them, maybe never having even left their hometown, are going to travel to the Judean countryside. You're going to travel for miles and be gone for months on end. They're going to go to all kinds of cool places. And maybe perhaps they'd like to bring something back for their nephew or for their cousin. Or maybe one of their children or their wife. And Jesus says, you don't need a bag. Because you're not going to be bringing any souvenirs back. You're going by yourself having brought nothing into this world be certain church that you will carry nothing out it's a good reminder for us it's a timely reminder we as the disciples of christ also on a journey also sent out to preach need not take a bag with us why because we won't bring any of it with us not to where we're going not when our journey's final or, or finished Jesus goes on to say they won't even need a change of clothes. He says, don't bring a second tunic. A tunic was a shirt that was worn under the robe next to the skin. So you can use your imagination or maybe don't, but this is essentially like underwear in a, in a, of sorts. It worn. Uh, it could be worn with or without a robe over it. It reached almost to the knees, maybe even closer to the ankles sometimes. And two tunics. If, if a man had two tunics, it was evidence that he had a, a decent amount of wealth. Disciples were to have no more than what an ordinary man would have on their back. That's all they were to take, one set. If you were traveling and you had the ability, you would want to take two or maybe even more tunics with you and that way you'd have a change of clothes in case you got wet or muddy or some some type of unclean nonsense on you. Second tunic at night would be useful when you're covering up from the chilly night air, which it gets cold there in the evenings especially. But they would have to trust God for hospitality each and every night. you see what God is doing? you see what Jesus is doing to his disciples? He's, he's putting them in a position that they'll have to trust him, that they'll have to lean into him and, 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 and trust that he'll provide for their needs. Then look in verse 20. It says, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And this can be confusing, but this is what he's saying. Hey, when you get to a city or a town and you you're welcomed into a house, you've preached a little bit and they say, Hey, where are you staying tonight? And you say, Well, hey, I ain't got no place to stay. They say, Well, come to my house. Jesus says, Well, if you're gonna be there for a week or two weeks, hey, whatever house invited you in, stay there. You might find a better offer. You might find something a little bit nicer, a little more comfortable for you and your buddy. Maybe they have a ping pong table there. Maybe they, have, they serve better coffee, uh, you know, whatever. Maybe they're not keto, you know, and it's like, hey, they, they actually serve real pie at this other place. I'm tired of this. You know, Jesus is saying, no, hey, it's not time to, to, to hop around and find the best accommodation in town. No, wherever you've been invited to stay, that's where you're going to stay. Just trust me that, that I've appointed this place for you and that you'll have a place. And then verse 11, he kind of shifts gears a little bit. And he says, and if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave. Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now, it says, if any place, that word place, this is interesting. Uh, For those of you who like to study like words and etymology and and stuff like that, that word place in the Greek is topos. Does anybody know where, uh, anybody have an idea where uh, that, what that word is related to in the English language, topos? How about topography? It's related to topography. He got the prize. Uh, Anthony got the prize today. Um, (laughs) Yay. <laughs> so basically it means if any place, he's not speaking of, of a house. If you think about topographical map, it's like, well, hey, where are the high points? Where the high points are typically where the cities are. And so this is where the, the city would be. If any place, if any high place in a sense or any city um, or town, if, when you're visiting there, if those people do not welcome you, if they don't listen to your message, then what are you to do? Well, you're to shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. Now, I know that most of you, that makes perfect sense too. You're like, well, that makes, that makes good sense. The other day I was at my, my in law's house, and when, as I left, I basically uh, just kind of kicked my feet together on the, on the doorpost and walked out, and they totally got the diss. They understood exactly what I was saying. But for most of us, or for many of us, rather, I should say, you don't really know what that means. Well, orthodox jews when they would travel outside of the holy land and then they would return before they actually entered into the holy land you know what they would do they would shake no they yeah they would shake the dust off of their feet why well they didn't want to bring any of that land that cursed land into the promised land they didn't want to bring any of that land into the holy land they didn't want and even down to this idea and you might think well this is totally silly. Well, they wanted to keep the land pure. They shook the dust off their feet and they said, we don't want any of that Gentile land in here. And you say, well, I don't know if I like that or not. Well, that's that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, God's mercy, his covenant faithfulness is against, is towards Israel and to those who will humble themselves and seek him. But the Gentiles, those who reject God, who rebel against him, who's God, who, God, who does not have God's favor on them, don't, don't mingle with them. Even down to the very land that you live in, don't mingle it. So they would shake the dust off of their feet, basically saying, hey, we don't want any of that cursed land coming into this blessed land. So that type of a rejection points to us and says, hey, they were not to treat their message lightly. This was a serious thing. It wasn't just like, hey, God's got a message for you. Read it, don't, it's fine, whatever. No big deal. I mean, I I don't know. No, they were to preach the gospel. They were to preach the gospel of repentance. And if they accepted it, then they would receive the grace that came along with it, the blessing that came along with it. But if they rejected it, they were to shake the dust off their feet when they left saying, listen, we don't want any of that cursed land going with us. It was a sign to them, a cultural understanding that God's curse was upon them, that his condemnation was upon the place that rejected the message of Jesus. So the message of the gospel, you need to know this, it's one of either blessing or cursing. Do you recognize that? It's not an arbitrary, non message. It means something. And when you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you hear the call to repent, Depending on how you respond to that, it either brings condemnation or salvation, blessing or cursing. And Jesus was sending out his representatives, his disciples to say, hey, if you respond, then blessings are upon you. If you reject, the curse that you would associate with the Gentiles is upon you. Think back to when Jesus was baptizing, or I'm sorry, when when the apostle John I'm sorry, not the, not the apostle, when they, uh, and John the baptizer, I'll get it right, when John the baptizer was, was preaching and baptizing in the Jordan, what was he saying to, the, to those from Jerusalem that were coming down? What was he saying to them? Repent and be what? Baptized. Why would a Jew need to be baptized? Remember, we talked about this several months ago. If a Jew were to be baptized, he's basically saying, I am not a child of God. I am not an heir of Abraham. And his blessings. And I am like a Gentile. If I want to come to God, I must come through the waters. This is basically the same thing. It's right in line with that. Jesus is saying, shake the dust off. Why? Because even though that's a Jewish town that you're in, even though it's a a town that believes that they have the blessings of God, shake the dust off of your feet when you leave as a testimony against them, saying that God's curse is upon you. God's condemnation is upon you. And so there's a couple explanations of what this means. What does this warning mean? Or what does this statement mean? Is it a warning or is it a ruling? Let me unpack those two options for you. If it's a warning, it's a testimony to them that says, "Hey, listen, as I'm shaking the dust off of my feet, you need to know this. If you don't repent, if you don't change your heart, if you don't humble yourself to this and receive this message, And God's judgment is upon you. And so it was maybe a warning. Another viewpoint is that it's a ruling. It's not a warning. It's saying, no, case closed. It's over. This is a testimony against you. You've abandoned yourself to your own fate. You've rejected this message. And now God's judgment awaits for you in the last day. And so some would say it is a warning. Some would say it's a ruling. I, I tend to think it's actually both. It's both. It's saying, no, God's wrath is upon you. God's judgment is upon you. And you're, you'll face that in the last day. But I do believe that it also served as a warning. And that many, even after this day, had the opportunity to still receive this message of repentance. So I believe that it's both. Even so, as we go out, we recognize that in our lives. we Sometimes we'll preach the gospel to somebody and we'll sow a seed and we'll see nothing. And we could, if it were culturally appropriate and understandable, we could shake the dust off our feet and in some sense saying, hey, if you don't, if you don't repent, if you don't receive this, God's wrath will be upon you. You'll face that judgment in the last day. But then we know that some other people will come alongside that seed that you watered and they'll begin or that you planted and they'll begin to water it. And they'll do some work there. And maybe they'll even say, hey, I've, I've watered a seed that was planted and now there's been no increase. There's been no fruit. There's been no repentance. And yet then a third person will come along and what will they do? They'll reap this harvest. Well, what are these disciples doing if not planting seeds? And from time to time in town to town, they would see repentance. Exactly what they called people to, what Jesus had called them to, they would receive it. And yet at other times they wouldn't. And so they would give them this warning and and even this ruling that God's wrath was against them. And if they didn't repent, it would be to their doom. And so how do we apply this to our lives, this general idea of all these instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples specifically? Are we to walk around and shake dust off of our feet after we've told our neighbor, neighbors about the gospel? Are we to only wear sandals? That seems like that's what the text is saying. If we're disciples, we should also only wear sandals as well. Is that really what we should be doing? Should we only have one change of clothes? Should we only stay where we're welcome? Is, is this what we're to do? Well, no, but we are to follow the plan. And what is the plan? Jesus charged them. He commanded them with some specifics. Without some basic hermeneutical skills, we can get into an odd space real quick, right? That's that church that only wears one tunic and sandals, and everybody has uh, a bow staff, right? Like Napoleon Dynamite, right? So that's not what we've been called to do. But there are some principles from verses 8 to 11 that we can distill and then we can begin to apply in our lives today as also being disciples of Jesus Christ. I, I think I just for brevity, here's two real quick. One, why would Jesus call them to do this? One, for dependence on God. This isn't on the screen. But one would be dependence on God. Why, what, are, what are some of the principles? Well, God, Jesus wanted his disciples to what? To depend on him. To depend on him. And as they depend on him, what ends up happening? Well, it removes this self-sufficient attitude that plagues so many of us. We can, we can accomplish whatever God has called us to do as individuals and even as a church by our own strength. And so as Christians, as we go through our lives, what should we be doing? Well, not necessarily not taking a bag and not taking a change of undergarments, but no, we should be depending on God. And we should be seeking opportunities where we can demonstrate our, our dependence on him. Recognizing that he will satisfy our needs. And he'll even direct us. He'll open up doors for us when we depend on God. Which speaks to resting in his power. You say, well, this seems odd to do these things. Aren't there other means? Aren't there other methods that we could employ? Maybe even some of the world's methods in order to accomplish the message of the uh, the mission of Jesus. The answer is no. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we've got to put ourselves in positions where we we would demonstrate dependence on God. And I'm not just speaking financially. Relationally. As well, logistically, we d- we should be depending on God, recognizing that we hopefully are on mission for Him. But there's another principle here that I think we can pull out of here: not just dependence on God, but also urgency of the mission. Urgency of the mission. That's another reason why I think Jesus was saying, "Hey, don't pack a bunch of stuff. Why? They could travel faster." Two of them without carrying a bunch of luggage. They wouldn't need to have some type of a cart. They wouldn't need to have some type, of a, uh, some type of an animal carrying these things for them. What they could do is just go. Pack light. Don't be burdened with the cares of this life. Don't be burdened with, the, with the, the, the things of comfort that might bog you down. No, set those things to the side. And for this time, run the race. Run quickly. And so there's an urgency that Jesus was giving and sending with these disciples. So they needed, they needed to put themselves in a position that they would demonstrate dependence on God, but also that they would be in compliance with the urgency that is the mission. I want to give you two more statements as you consider. What does it look like for you to apply this passage to your, your life? One is this. We should be guided by cultural appropriateness and not personal comfort. We should be guided by cultural appropriateness and not personal comfort. What do I mean by that? Well, again... Should we go shake the dust off of our feet to people when they reject the gospel? No. But should they walk away not knowing that if they don't repent that God's wrath is upon them? You see, it wouldn't be culturally appropriate for you to expect people to just house you and as you ask the neighbor, hey, you mind if I stay the night here? No, that's not culturally appropriate. We don't want to be slaves to the culture. We don't let that to dictate or even uh, compromise what God has called us to do as Christians, as disciples. But we also want to recognize that communication of the gospel has a level of cultural appropriateness. And so that should be what guides us and not our own personal comfort. Not what what makes you happy. So wearing sandals, carrying a stick but no money and expecting people to give you a place to sleep is a fast track to rejection. But not so in Jesus' day. All of his instructions would not detract from the message. No, they would, they would give it a force. And so how do we apply this? Well, we are to be guided with the intention of being culturally appropriate and not comfortable. But here's another thought, just, just another thought. Our conduct must be consistent with and conducive to the calling. I wish I'd put this on the screen for you. Our conduct must be consistent with and conducive to the calling. The gospel is a message that teaches that God is our only source of hope, not money, not possessions, not even health. What does your life right now tell us about, tell the rest of us about what you believe about the one to come, about the life to come? The way that you operate, the way that you handle your schedule, the way that you handle your finances, what does it say about what you believe about this life and the one to come? Are they in step with one another? Are they in agreement? Your conduct as a disciple, as a Christian, must be consistent with and conducive to, to to helping along to this mission that God has called us to be on. The way that we live our lives, it must line up with the message that we proclaim. And these are some principles that we can pull out of there. As we, before we move on, I want to ask this. Are there any terms or limitations that you've placed on your calling by Jesus, as a disciple, to advance the gospel. I'll, I'll only do it if I can make this much money or live in this area. I'll only obey the call if, if these certain things align. Or will you, like the disciples, say, whatever you say, whatever you call me to go with, wherever you call me to go, I'll go in full obedience. I think it's fitting to look at verse number 12 next. It says, so they went out. And proclaim that people should repent. It's so easy to skip over that. Jesus calls them, he equips them, he sends them, and what happens? This is shocking. This is shocking. They actually went, right? 21st century Christians, listen, they were called, they were sent, and they went. This is something that we miss so often. They went. More on that in just a moment. Look at this word repent. We've, we've seen it a million times as a church. But let's, let's look at it at a million and one, right? It, it means to change one's way of life as the result of a complete change of thought and attitude in regard to sin and righteousness. I got that out of a systematic theologi- the- theology book, so I didn't come up with that definition by myself. I'll read it to you again. To change one's way of life as a result of complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. That's what the disciples were calling those people whom they visited to do. To have a change of thought and attitude which would result in a change of life specifically as it related to sin and righteousness. To change the standard, to flip-flop. Remember to call people to repent. Don't miss this other word. It says that they were to proclaim. That they, I'm sorry, that they did proclaim. Past tense. I, I love that word. In the Greek, it, it actually is caruso. I love that word, caruso. Maybe you think of Robinson Caruso. That's the Greek word. It means to preach. It means to proclaim. And so I, I love that sometimes caruso is translated as preaching, but I, I really like when it says proclaim, and here's why. Because oftentimes we think that the average Christian, just the average disciple doesn't preach. They don't participate in this Caruso, that they only, what? Listen. That they only attend. And yet all Christians, all disciples are called to participate in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each and every one of us. And so in October we say, Pastor, thank you for faithful preaching. Thank you for that. And he is, hopefully, right? We hope and trust that from this word, faithfully, the word of God is proclaimed and preached, but that's not just what we do as pastors. All Christians are to be part of this proclamation. You say, well, I know, but I just can't preach repentance. Well, maybe you can't. What does it help if I say in English, you can proclaim it? We've got to proclaim the message of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we go forward. Verse 13, it says, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. I'm unpack just a few things in there quickly. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. The oil was common olive oil, we think, used for cooking, anointing, for, for sacrifice, for lamp, fuel, and even for medicine. This is a very commonplace item in most homes. And it's assumed, though, that when the disciples would anoint with oil, that there would be an immediate healing. Be, after the anointing, there would be an immediate cure. And so olive oil was used as a medicine. But in this context, it's not speaking of disciples going out and giving people medicine. That's not what's taking place here. The idea is that company, accompanied by this ordinary means of oil... That there would be a supernatural, instantaneous healing coupled with faith. Very similar to the way that Christ would operate. And this is an extension of Christ's ministry. And so they would anoint people, but this was a symbolic act and not a therapeutic act. Verse 12, it says, They went out and they proclaimed. They went out. Here's the third and final thing I want you to walk away with this morning. That you be on mission. That you be on mission. They didn't abdicate their responsibility that they'd been given by Christ. I love that. So simple. They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Jesus called them. He charged them, he sent them, and what did they do? They went out. Church, so often we talk about it. As evangelicals, as the universal church, What do we, we love to talk about new methods of evangelism and sharing the gospel and ways that we can proclaim that message. But one of my fears, and I've realized it in my own life, is I would much rather talk about it than I would rather actually do it. May we be on mission This is the mark of a true disciple, that they go. They hear the commission and that they obey the commission. Our mission is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to do it in his way, to do it in his power. And ultimately, when we do that, he will get the glory. What are we to do as a church? We're to hear the call. And so do that, hear the call this morning. Is he calling you? Is is he, is he calling you to repent? Is he calling you to go? And if so, follow the plan. Demonstrate a dependence on God and not on yourself. And finally, be on mission. Don't abdicate your responsibilities. Go in the power and strength and in the authority of the one who sends us. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this passage of scripture that you've given to us this morning for us to look through, for us to be encouraged by. In spirit, we trust that you have worked in our hearts this morning. Father, we know that we need as a church to hear this call that you've given to us. We would follow the plan. And that we would be on your mission. And we ask that you help us to do these things. Not just today, but tomorrow. And for as long as you, tarry. we ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus. Amen. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus lists out his disciples. It's a little bit different. It's the same disciples, but he lists it out in a little bit of a different way than Mark did in chapter 6. i want to read it to you. Matthew 10, verses 2 to 4. The names of the 12 apostles are these. Listen for what sticks out. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. At first glance, if you're like me, you notice that there's a tax collector and a zealot in that list of 12 disciples. We know that tax collectors were unsavory characters. They basically took advantage of their own people um, for the, on, on, on behalf of themselves. We also know about zealots, that zealots were often political nationalists that took their views far too far, far too often. So there's some rough dudes, some guys that we don't want to hang out with and play cards with on Friday night. And then look at the last guy on this list. He, it says Judas Iscariot who betrayed jesus right this is a this is a this is a rough group but they're not the only guys these three aren't the only ones that were you know kind of had issues i mean look at the first one on the list simon who is called peter this guy's the he's the leader of the inner circle right That's, which doesn't exist right he's the leader of these dudes he's chosen by jesus he said and he also what does he do he he turns against jesus and that didn't go unnoticed, right? And all of these guys, they were, they were rough. And it makes me think of Luke chapter 15. I know I'm bouncing around, but kind of stay with me here just for a moment. In verse 15, it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him to hear him. So imagine that. You've got Jesus and he's preaching. And then you've got the disciples around him and they're a rough crew. I'm not trying to throw off and paint them in a way that would be unhelpful. But in reality, we got we got a we got a rough group here. And Luke fifteen, verse two, it says, And the Pharisees and the scribes they grumbled, saying, Look at all these sinners gathering around Jesus. And this is what they say about him. How terrible. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Think about that. Jesus surrounded by the twelve disciples, sinners tax collectors, zealots, possibly murderers. He welcomes them. There's a larger group of, of sinners gathered around Jesus. And what does he do? He welcomes them and he eats with them. You see, they meant that statement as a slap in the face against Jesus. They meant it for evil, but listen, God meant it for good. Why? This accusation was a declaration And it's a beautiful one, that Jesus would dine with sinners. Aren't you glad that Jesus eats with sinners? This morning we uh, recognize and celebrate the Lord's Supper. And at this supper, Jesus receives and welcomes sinners. He's prepared a meal for us and he welcomes us to the table to eat and to dine with us. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members of the church to participate in the bread and fruit of the vine, we memorialize the death of the Redeemer and we anticipate his second coming. The Catholics, they teach that the rite of Holy Communion was a good work and that man's offering of Christ to, to God, we would, we would participate in it as some kind of a, a good work. I'm so thankful that the Reformation really it reversed that it revised it and and brought us into truth it says this that the Lord's Supper is about Christ offering himself he's prepared a meal for us this morning his broken body and his shed blood for the forgiveness of sins he's invited us to that table and so the Lord's Supper really it it, em, it embodies the gospel there's nothing that we need to look for as Christians past the table as we consider the grace that it represents and the symbol that it is for us this morning. And so as we consider what it would look like for us to approach the table this morning, I wanna just give some instructions. If you are not a believer this morning, if you're not a Christian, I'm so, I really, I'm, I'm, I'm excited that you're here. I, I don't know you that well, likely, but I love you. And you're welcome here. And there's not many things that we would say, hey, don't participate in on Sunday mornings. But this is one thing where we would say, please abstain. If you're not a Christian this morning, there's nothing at this table for you. Nothing. It's a symbol of what Christ has already given to his bride, to the church. And so if you're not a believer, please abstain. I also just want to tell you that we have prepackaged packets of Cracker and juice, and there's nothing magical about them. And so if you're a child or if you're a young Christian, you say, well, what, does it, what is this? Is, it, is, it, is there some type of a magic uh, associated with this? Is it, what, what is happening here? Well, it's just crackers and juice. It's, it's not a means of grace. If you partake of the Lord's Supper, it doesn't save you. It doesn't cleanse you. It is a remembrance that Christ has given to us. It is, it is something that we partake of together as we are reminded of what the cross actually is. So with that mindset, Christian, prepare your heart to come to the table. I want to look at some passage at uh, some some statements that Paul the apostle made in regards to the Lord's Supper. We find those in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I want to read part of that chapter to you. This is what the word of God says. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. But let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come to eat together, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About other things, I will give directions when I come. So just a a few comments on this. When we take communion, we don't take it really as people who are just hungry, right? Hungry people, when they come to a meal, they just say, I need to eat because I, I need nutrition. And so we rush to the table, maybe even with unwashed hands, and scarf it down. But at, at Passover, the Jews were to cast out all leaven that was in their home. They were to get it all out of their house. They, they made diligent effort for leaven. And they would light candles and search under cupboards and they would search under chairs and tables and beds and they would get everything out. And then when they would gather it all together, they would cast it out of their home, right? They're hungry, they want the meal, but they're not gonna take it unworthily. And finally, they... They curse themselves if they would be willing to keep any of that leaven in their house. And that signified the, 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 really the soul searching that should be taking place as we come to the Lord's table. Is there any wicked way in us? Searching with the light of the word of God, asking the spirit of God to, to show us is there something evil in our hearts? Something that we're holding to. And if in fact we come face to face with leaven or, or sin, wickedness in our hearts, what do we do? Well, we confess it confess it to god we admit it we repent hungry people they come to the table with unwashed hands but they also come to the table with this individualistic mindset last night we we sat down as a family yesterday afternoon anyway and i won't mention any names but a few in the family just began to to scarf down their meal as soon as it was served to them why well they're hungry And so hungry people come to the table with an individualistic mindset. This is a meal for me. They plop down, they scoop it up, and they begin to eat. But church, as we come to the Lord's table together, realize this, that we are coming together. This is a meal that we have been called to enjoy and partake of, that Christ has prepared for his bride. So we don't come and just scarf it down. We wait for one another. And so when you take communion this morning, realize this, that we are taking it together. Glance around the church, The table has been set for all of us that are in Christ. And so together we share this meal prepared by the Lord and Savior as a body. We also see through this passage that hungry people, they don't just see the table as food, but they come as a group of people who are thankful for Jesus. And they come to the table and they see the symbol of his body and the blood and they recognize what this meal symbolizes. And so there there has to be this reverent recognition of what the table represents. We're taking this symbol in ourselves. We're nourished by the truth that we're symbolizing. And so when we come to the table, remember what these substances represent. And again, the scripture here is helpful. Verse 23, it says this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so remember that as you take the, that wafer, or that cracker in your mouth, that it represents the broken body of Christ. He goes on to say in verse 25, this cup, this wine is, in the, is, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so this cup is the covenant. It's a symbol of a relationship that we have as Christians with God that can never be broken. We drink of the cup, we eat of the bread, and thereby we take in the truth that God has bound us to him in a way that we could never break. It goes past all of our conflicts, We have amongst ourselves our mistakes, our sins, our failures and the challenges that we face on a daily basis. It's stronger than all that. But we also eat as Christians with this view to the day that we won't have to just think of his face. We'll eat and share this meal together at a table prepared for us in the presence of Christ. And there we will ever be with the Lord. And so, church, as we come to the table, I want to encourage you, examine your hearts. Consider the weight of what Christ has done for you and then let's rejoice together as we take communion. The tables will be open. Christian, celebrate this, that Jesus, he welcomes sinners and he eats with them. The tables are open when you're ready.